Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together, we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the testimonies of Jason Lukowski, Amber Rasmussen, Sarah Hughes, and Carrie Ann Swart. Our discussion of this week's witnesses is coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thanks again for joining us. Hi, Carrie. Pleasure to be here. Jason Lukowski, state's witness, associate of Ryan Balch and Kyle Rittenhouse on the night of August 25th, 2020. How did you think that Prosecutor Binger's direct examination of Lukowski served his case? I thought Mr. Lukowski was an excellent witness. Now, I'm hearing the testimony as opposed to seeing him, but the picture I had was of a straightforward, clean-cut sort of guy who didn't mince words. And I thought he was helpful to the prosecution, more helpful than most of the other witnesses. I would have frankly placed him earlier in the state's case than when he appeared. And I thought they got a couple of things that were useful from him. Lukowski was the best Rittenhouse compatriot witness for the state, in my opinion. He came across as straightforward, matter of fact. He didn't pull his punches. He saw what he saw. He didn't see what he didn't see. And he offered a few good things for the state. Number one, he offered that Joseph Rosenbaum posed no threat whatsoever. Number two, in what he said to law enforcement shortly after the incident, he recalled Rittenhouse as having lied about shooting anyone. And third, he offered to the state what seems to me to be the best testimony consistent with their theory that restraint was in order under all the circumstances, even amidst the chaos. Lukowski was a rather restrained witness, and he had that fabulous marine mantra of shout, shove, show, shoot. And in his account of what was going on, he said that shouting worked. That whenever the protesters are getting too close, even as the police were kind of pushing them in the direction of the car lot, shouting at them to stay away seemed to work. So the least aggressive response seemed to work. Okay, let me play defense attorney for a moment and point out that Corey Sharafasi, 
asked Lakowski whether he had had the experiences that he now knows that Kyle Rittenhouse had that evening, whether he would have felt the same way about Joseph Rosenbaum. That was effective cross-examination because what the defense was suggesting is that Lakowski didn't see Rosenbaum at his worst, didn't hear him explicitly make threats, and so basically rebutted his opinion. But the state still has, what did he call him, like a blubbering fool? That's useful because the state could argue in closing argument that no matter what Rosenbaum said, you know, the most dispassionate, objective reporter or observer of the events described him as an utter fool, not worthy of any thought. I mean, Lukowski literally said he turned his back on him. He could care less about Rosenbaum. The other thing that Corey Shirovsky pointed out was that nowhere in Lukowski's mantra of shout, shove, show, shoot was what his client did, which was run away. That was effective. I mean, those are all good points. But am I saying I think that the prosecution got the better of the witness? I don't know. But I think they scored a few points that they can later argue at closing. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. You know, do I have some things to argue? And I think they could probably elevate this witness. And they could have elevated him more had they called him earlier. Because I think he's kind of getting lost in the middle. I still think they have some takeaways. You know, do I think that the defense muted some of their takeaways? Absolutely. Because there's this bizarre thing of redirect and then recross, which honestly, most trial judges do not allow. The back and forth is not so good for the prosecution. And ultimately, though I don't think the jury will be able to unring this bell. The judge sustained an objection that what Lakowski thought might have been the more logical thing for Rittenhouse to say. He can't say that. Frankly, it's irrelevant what he thinks the logical thing was. The question is what was said. But by the time that came out, by the time that objection was sustained, the damage was already done. So who knows what Rittenhouse said, whether he said that or not. And I'm also, even though I'm suggesting that the prosecution scored some points, if some members of the jury think that Rittenhouse lied about having shot, you know, several people, I actually don't think that's a very powerful point. Because, you know, arguably, and their own witness, Lakowski, described him this way, Rittenhouse was in a state of shock, you know, and fear. And it was probably true that people were yelling, get him as he was running. And so does it really matter what's logical or what's not logical or whether he lied or didn't lie? Yes, it's a decent point if he's a liar. But on the other hand, you had that conduct of Rittenhouse where he's approaching the police, and we all saw it on videotape, you know, basically in a posture of surrender. So even though I'm saying the prosecutor might have scored a discrete point, I don't think it was a very important point. I think the better stuff was that Rosenbaum, you know, was nothing, was, you know, all sound and fury and no danger. That was useful. The other things that Sharofsky got out of Lakowski were Rosenbaum's repeated use of the N-word in addressing people. And again, like with Ryan Balch, the fact that the legitimate protesters were concerned about Rosenbaum and were sort of afraid of Rosenbaum and expressed that to Lakowski. 
Well, Lukowski, so there was that interesting moment in the direct examination where Lukowski was being himself, but a restrained kind of version and said, you know, there were legitimate protesters. There were people there to protect property. And then there were what he called a-holes. And the judge admonished him and said, you know, we're, we're in a court of law. But, you know, meanwhile, a lot of other language was happening out there. Most trial judges would say, we're all adults here. You know, tell us what literally was said. You know, yes, he's using the N-word. I think it's because he seemed like a fool, according to Lukowski, and that's useful. Not necessarily a likable fool, but a nuisance, an annoyance. You know, maybe a provocateur, but a provocateur verbally and not any greater threat than that. I think is what Lukowski was saying. And I'm just saying, I think Lukowski came across well. It's not that the defense didn't do a good job in crossing him. They did. But there's some takeaways for both sides, I guess, with this witness. During Prosecutor Binger's questioning of Lukowski, he had Lukowski talk about the non-lethal devices that he had with him, including some tear gas. Right. And I thought that that was an effective part of his questioning of Lukowski. Do you think he missed an opportunity to ask Lukowski whether there were non-lethal ways to use the AR-15, perhaps as a cudgel of some sort? So that's a good question. I think he could have developed a bit more of the tear gas piece. It kind of was raised and then dropped, but that could have been developed as an alternative to discharging a firearm, especially in a chaotic crowd kind of situation. And I think he probably would have gotten something from Lukowski because why else did he have that gas if not as an alternative and probably mindful of the number of people on the street and innocent bystanders could certainly be hurt if not killed by a high-powered semi-automatic rifle. As to the cudgel, I suppose, sure, there were questions that could have been asked about how a weapon can be used, but I don't know. I think Lukowski really was kind of enamored of that shout, shove, show, shoot thing. And nowhere in there was there a shout, shove, show, slam, shoot. So I don't know if he would have given him that in that way, that there was something less than shooting. But I think he probably could have more artfully suggested that, you know, a firearm includes, you know, steel and very hard plastic or composite. And there's some weight to it. And when used as a cudgel or a, you know, an instrument to harm, you can do some harm with it. He could have done it that way. The only problem with the cudgel thing is that that firearm was strapped to Rittenhouse. He would have had to have taken it off himself. And so I think it's a little bit dangerous. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In the second part of our conversation, Abby and I discussed the week's other witnesses. Let's move on to Amber Rasmussen, who was the prosecution's DNA forensic expert. 
We saw for the first time prosecutor Thomas Binger's co-counsel, James Krause, questioning this witness and, in fact, the next two witnesses after Rasmussen. Rasmussen testified that there was only one identifiable sample of DNA found on Kyle Rittenhouse's weapon, and that was the defendant's own DNA. Neither the DNA of Anthony Huber nor the DNA of Joseph Rosenbaum was found on the weapon. And under direct examination, she testified that they had samples from the trigger area of the weapon, as well as samples from the barrel area of the weapon. Sharafasi, during his cross-examination, countered that the DNA samples were not from the barrel itself, but from the barrel casing, and Rasmussen didn't know the difference between those two things. And secondly, showed pictures to Rasmussen of Anthony Huber in two different photographs holding the barrel of Rittenhouse's weapon. What did you make of that questioning and the purpose of that questioning? I think this witness was a draw. She testified to what she could, and there's some ammunition for the prosecution to argue at closing, that what her testimony seemed to suggest is that if there was any sustained contact, anything more than a glancing physical contact, then there would be DNA. And it seems to me that grabbing a person's gun in a truly threatening way would require sustained contact. Now, it's arguable as to what that contact was about and whether it was a kind of glancing blow or something more meaningful. Now, I didn't think it mattered that the witness didn't know the difference between a barrel guard and a barrel. What she's saying is the stuff that was given to me, we did this comparison and we found only the defendant's DNA. You know, I mean, because she's not a firearms expert, and so it doesn't hurt her credibility that she doesn't know that. She's just testifying as a police laboratory scientist as to the presence or absence of DNA. The defense did a good job, but it was a pretty standard cross-examination. Simply because there is no DNA doesn't mean there wasn't contact, and you can't rule out that there was contact. The only thing you can say is that you didn't find DNA. And so that's correct. So it doesn't really hurt the defense. They kind of minimized it, but it gives the prosecution a little something to argue. Let's move on to Anthony Huber's great aunt, Sarah Hughes. Tell me more about your feelings about her testimony. Loved her. Here's what I was thinking as she was testifying was, why did Binger go in this order. And you raised the other prosecutor who finally spoke up recently. I don't really understand the orchestration of that either. It's like suddenly they brought in a guest star. Usually if you got co-counsel, yes, there's such a thing as lead counsel and somebody might play a lesser role, but it's really odd to not hear from the second prosecutor until suddenly now. And it wasn't like the prosecutor seemed like he was such an expert at DNA. I mean, sometimes you'll bring in somebody who's particularly gifted at that sort of thing. That's awful. Oftentimes in the beginning of Innocence Project, Barry Sheck would defer to Peter Neufeld on questioning experts with regard to DNA. This The prosecutor who's the sidekick of Binger didn't seem to bring much of that. It felt to me like they were stuck in the same order that you present the podcast every single episode, that it's the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Gross Kreitz. They don't have to go in that order. 
just because the indictments come down in that order doesn't mean that you have to lead with the Joseph Rosenbaum story. Joseph Rosenbaum is complicated. I'm not your typical juror. I'm a very defense-oriented person on account of what I do for a living. But Rosenbaum is complicated. He's a loose cannon, but he's also kind of a sympathetic psychiatric hospital patient. He doesn't have schizophrenia. He suffers from depression, bipolar illness. The diagnoses were kind of relatable. I think a lot of people know people who either have bipolar disorder or depression. And so it wasn't like he was a dangerous lunatic to use language from the 19th century. But anyhow, he's still complicated. You know, even though I think his girlfriend made him more sympathetic, I would never have led with the Joseph Rosenbaum story. I would have led with Anthony Huber. He's really sympathetic. He comes across according to the ant, is like kind of a cute red-haired guy who is inseparable from his skateboard. He's a skateboarder. And she also, you know, gives us that he knew Jacob Blake. Like, how great is that? He actually had a personal connection to the case. So he's not the guy out there using the N-word. He's a guy out there with his skateboard, which is how he rolls, literally and figuratively, and really wasn't looking for trouble. I mean, he's the hero. He's the guy who sees a shooter, believes he's an active shooter that could cause more harm, and and intervenes and gets killed. And he was so humanized by his great aunt. You know, he got his driver's license the Friday before his birthday. He loves to skateboard so much that he can find a patch to skate on even in the snow. He's part of a loving family that gets together several times a year. I mean, like he suddenly was a regular guy. And I don't know why they didn't lead with him because I think also the charges are more provable for him. You know, I keep wondering why they didn't charge manslaughter something less than homicide, even though I understand it was reckless homicide with regard to Joseph Rosenbaum. But I thought that the story, the narrative, the emotional appeal, the sympathetic nature of Anthony Huber means he should have been the first person. How do you engage fact finders? How do you engage a jury? You tell them that they should feel really bad about what happened here to the victims, not feel bad about what happened to the defendant, which is, you know, but the defense is winning. They've like waylaid the whole conversation. And now it's about the sympathetic defendant. But I think if the prosecution had gone first with Huber, it would have had more emotional appeal. Let's move on to Carrie Ann Swart, Joseph Rosenbaum's fiance. What did you make of her testimony? All right. I liked her too. Now, I didn't see her. I only heard her. But she came across as intelligent, well-spoken, careful about what she said. But it was like, she's also difficult. It's a window to the way some people in this country have no choice but to live. She was homeless. But the jury had to see her as a human being who happened to be homeless, who clearly had had some education and who I thought was rather affecting in the way she talked about her grief upon learning that her boyfriend, Joe Rosenbaum, was dead. I think she humanized him also. But, you know, on the other hand, she also helps portray, and I think the judge was right, that the the state opened the door to testimony about Rosenbaum's mental health comes in. But, you know, she didn't do it in a way that hurt him, and the protection order didn't come in. Um, And she seemed, you know, to be genuinely attached to him. Why did you think that Krauss brought up the medication? What was that about? I don't know, except for perhaps to minimize the mental illness that, you know, he wasn't on the stuff that people tend to recognize as antipsychotics like Haldol. 
But that opened up the conversation about the mental illness. In other words, he brought up the fact that Rosenbaum wasn't able to get his medication because Walgreens was boarded up. You're right. That's how he opened the door was he began to ask these questions about what medication Rosenbaum was on and whether he had taken his medication and how she knew and whether he was seeking medication. I don't know. I don't know whether the prosecution was trying to pull a fast one and suggest that he had been in a hospital for medical problems and that maybe he was in pain, physical pain. I don't know. It was strange. If he did not mean to open the door, then he was rather careless in asking that series of questions. And I'm not sure how that was ever going to help him. The one other area that I thought Krauss was very clumsy on was when he tried to get Anthony Huber's great aunt to talk about Huber's habit of running towards trouble. And the objection came up about custom and habit. Krauss became argumentative with Judge Schrader, and Schrader was having none of it. He called a break and then told the jury that the prosecution was withdrawing the question. What did you make of that? That was bad. It was a bad look for the prosecution because he was rattled and showed it. And then you never want a judge to come back and instruct a jury that they saw that there was a conflict between a lawyer and the judge. And then the lawyer withdraws the question, you know, and then you sort of look like you're surrendering that you did something wrong. You know, it's an interesting question. It's a rather arcane area of evidence law, this custom and habit. You hardly ever hear those words used when talking about what's generally known as character evidence. I think some judges would have allowed it, frankly. You know, tell me what kind of person Anthony was. Was he the kind of person that if somebody was in distress, he would not want to get involved? Or was he the kind of person who would get involved? I think plenty of judges would have allowed that, you know, as some sort of explanation for Huber's conduct. And I think the prosecution really wants to, you know, have in this record testimony that Huber was not an aggressive person, that he was as much of a good citizen as all these armed people claim that they were trying to be by protecting these various car lots. So I understand what the prosecution was trying to do. Maybe they could have done it with a little more subtlety and it wouldn't have drawn the objection. Maybe if they had prepped their witness to say, tell me tell me a little something about Anthony Huber, and then she offered up a bunch of those qualities, that would be the better way to get it in. I think that's fairly standard when you're calling a relative of a decedent in a homicide. So it sounds to me like on balance, you thought that this was a much better week for the prosecution. But at the same time, you sound a bit mystified as to why the prosecution didn't lead with these witnesses and particularly with the Huber part of the story. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. This was a better week, but I'm bewildered as to the order of things. I've talked about this before with you. There's, you know, a theory of primacy and recency that you want to start strong and end strong in trial advocacy because people tend to remember the stuff you lead with and the stuff you end with. And what's in the middle, you know, can be witnesses that give you some positive things, but are a little problematic in other regards. They can be more mixed. You would put that in the middle. And, you know, I am surprised now, you know, it was a much better week. Maybe that's damning the prosecution with faint praise though, because it's been so bad, the rest of the evidence, the presentation of it, the order of it. And I'm not saying that the defense didn't do a good job of neutralizing these witnesses. They did. So, you know, some of them, I feel like, eh, In the end, it was kind of a draw. But overall, I would say the prosecutor now has some things to argue. 
And I think Lukowski was a really good everyman kind of witness, the kind of person that no matter what you're thinking in the jury, you can kind of take him at his word. And there were some useful things there. And, you know, if I was them, I would have put him much earlier on. He's somebody to embrace, you know, and on some level, he doesn't have a dog in this fight. You know, the prosecution made plain that he didn't know Rittenhouse on the date of the incident. Hasn't had contact with him since. He's not part of this crowd that's, you know, surrounding Rittenhouse and elevating him to some sort of heroic status. He's not in that. And so it'll be interesting to see how they do use him in closing argument. We'll see. But the girlfriend and the great aunt, I'm surprised because in a homicide, when when there's loss of life, one of the things prosecutors want to do from the start is get the jury to care. And they started out really badly that way. The witnesses they called witness after every witness, after witness, after witness, painted Rosenbaum as a serious threat. That's just not the way you start a homicide. So one last question for you, Abby. Was there anything that happened this week that made you question the conclusion you reached a couple of times during these weekly recap conversations that you're surprised that the prosecution didn't try to make a plea deal in the case? You know, I am. I I remain surprised. I started to do some research, frankly, into Wisconsin law and what could they have offered so that they wouldn't be devaluing the loss of human life, but they'd get a conviction. And that's the way I think most prosecutors would think about this case. I think most prosecutors would see after just a little bit of investigation that the case is going to be challenging, that they do not have perfect victims, with the exception of Anthony Huber, in my opinion. And are there alternatives? Based on how it's going so far, yes, I'm surprised they didn't offer a plea. Abby Smith, thanks again for joining us this week. Look forward to the next one. Okay, great. Thanks. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we review the testimonies of the owners of the car source dealerships in Kenosha, as well as several of the city's police officers who were on duty on August 25th, 2020. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.